scripture reading comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, and chapter 9, verses 2 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw all the toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, good morning. If we have not met one another, my name is Gabe. I'm one of the pastors here. And in light of what was read, God's word, uh, let's take a moment just in quiet reflection and prayer as we open up our hearts and minds to what God has for us from his word. Let's pray. Holy God, we are so grateful that your scriptures cover the height, the length, the breadth of our lives. There is not a nook or cranny in which you have not spoken wisdom, you have not shed light, 
that your spirit is not guiding us towards life. And so, God, I pray that today, as we gather and as we continue this journey, learning from Kohelet, learning from this preacher, that you would guide this particular preacher, that you would guide my words, you'd guide my body postures, all the things that are used to communicate, and even in the gaps between what is said and what is heard, you would infuse your spirit to bring an interpretation of trust that builds up the church and glorifies your good name. God, that's our heart's desire, and we know that this is a desire that comes from you because you love this people, you love this city, and you have a love for the world. We pray this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. And all God's people said, amen, amen, and amen. Well, it was May, or actually August 28th, 1963, the height of the civil rights era, and there were 250,000 people who gathered together for the March on Washington for jobs and freedom, one of the largest gatherings for civil rights in the U.S. history. And at the center of the podium, finally, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. stepped up, and in the midst of his brilliant oration and speech, Many of you know the words to this speech. Some of you have them memorized. Among those words, he would say things like, we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. And when this happens, and when we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we'll be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Amen. And then there were cheers, right? There was the, the air of change in the air. But the difficulty and the reality is in a world where dreams are possible, so are nightmares. Um, and so it was less than four years later. Many of us know the I have a dream speech. Many of us know that the beauty of that day, the sun shining, we, we know the, the story, but not too many of us know how on May 8th, 1967, less than four years later, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was interviewed by NBC, and in the midst of this interview, you saw a worn out man. Only four years' time had passed, and this is amidst the many things he had to say and once again, this isn't the part that we like to communicate, but it's important. He says, I must confess that dream that I had that day has in many points turned into a nightmare. Four years later, by the way. Now, I'm not one to lose hope. I keep on hoping. I still have faith in the future, but I've had to analyze many things over the last few years. And I would say over the last few months, I've gone through a lot of soul searching and agonizing moments. And I've come to see that we have 
many more difficult days ahead. And some of the old optimism was a little bit superficial. And now it must be tempered with a solid realism. I think the realistic fact is that we have still a long, long way to go. And you, if you were to watch that interview, you can go watch it online. Um, you see someone who is called, who is convicted, who is compelled to step towards the justice of all. And yet he was warned. You could see the weariness in his eyes. And then just one year, less than a year after he gave this interview, he was murdered, assassinated because of his stance for equality. As were many others, frankly, that we don't know the names of, who stood alongside, who continued to speak and pursue equality and justice for all, lives taken in the midst of all of that. You see, we live in a world of dreams, but the reality is, is for many, the nightmare continues to reign. And we had this message planned a long time ago. This is, if you know anything about Christ's community, I don't dream on Saturday and hope to reveal something on Sunday. <laughs> it's not the way we work. We try to follow a text. We try to go through a book. And we've had this sermon anchored for a minute now. But the reality is, just last week, we saw yet another shooter motivated by white supremacist ideology in Buffalo, New York, who intentionally targeted a black community of Americans and took another 10 lives. And in one sense, when I heard, if I can be utterly transparent, when I heard it, it was numbing. Because it's not unusual anymore. The response, much more natural, is, oh, it happened again? Oh, it's in the news again? And over the past 10 years, the majority of mass shootings have been driven, motivated by either some sort of racism or xenophobia. And so we come across this nightmare that just starts to numb us. And then, of course, there's all the other sorts of injustice and death that doesn't even, that doesn't even make the news because it's just not sensational enough, supposedly. And then you come to the words of Kohelet here. In chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, I'm going to read them again with that backdrop. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. Oppression, oppressors, oppressed, power. I know those are trigger words for some folks, okay? And I know that the moment those words are even read, it starts to sound like a particular political ideology, but the reality is, and some of you might be going there, but the reality is those are the words of Scripture. And we have to hear, even if it sounds similar to an ideology that you may not agree with, we have to first come to Scripture and let it lay the stage. You have to hear what God's word has to say, even if it sounds like an enemy. And it may just be a challenge to where we stand. And as you hear that, you may think to yourself, <laughs> nothing's changing. Even Kohelet feels like nothing seems to be changing. Written how many hundreds, thousands of years ago, these words were 
It feels like nothing is changing. And yet, what is it? There's something about us as human beings that we just constantly, we experience the pain and the brokenness, and then we can't just sit by and watch it. There's something within us. Actually, Kohelet says it's that eternity that God has put within us. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. The very desire, the understanding that the world ought not to be like this. That we say, I can't just sit by. I got to do something. I got to be a part of making the wrongs right. I've got to be a part. I can't, because I know that in many ways, silence or just sitting by. If you're watching someone drowning and you're sitting on the beach, just to watch them drown does not make you innocent. There's this question, this bubbling up, what must I do? But the longer you actually get in the work, the longer you see even your everyday conversations as a part of that work, the longer you see your whole lens through the lens of God's purposes, the sooner you may come to realize or feel what Kohelet feels and ask the question, well, why even work toward justice when it feels pointless? I mean, if you've really stepped into it, if you've really sought to understand the level of brokenness of our world, if you've really stepped in to say, I want to be a part of what God's doing to make wrongs right, there's going to come a moment where you're going to ask that question. And some of you may agree too much with that question. <laughs> some of you may find it so easy to quote when Jesus says, the poor you always have with you, therefore, what can we do? Some of you, may feel like this is classic pastoral overspeak. You're like, all right, Gabe, I know it's been a tough week, but come on. But here's the reality. We step into what Kohelet is overwhelmed by because he's honestly experienced it. He's honestly reflecting upon it, and he's guiding us, empowered by the Spirit of God. This is Scripture seeking to help us understand our world and even our place in it. And if it doesn't feel heavy, if this question never is pressed upon you, I'm going to help you feel it, <laughs> actually. And actually, I'm not going to. Kohel it is. He gives us at least three reasons why you should feel this at some point, okay? Three reasons, all right? And for that, we're going to look to the second passage that was read for us over at Ecclesiastes chapter 9. And really, we're going to just anchor for a minute here in verse 3, Okay? Sometimes you just got to sit in a nugget, you know, and you just got to let that permeate. So here we go. Three reasons why I can feel like justice and working towards justice is pointless. Here's the first one. Our justice work can have harmful unintended consequences. The abolition of slavery, what came after? Jim Crow laws. The abolition or the, the extinguishing of Jim Crow laws, you found the now re-evolution or the remaking uh, now of the cradle to the prison pipeline. The constant evolution of brokenness when people are working towards wholeness. We see the civil rights era pop up and then you see assassination after assassination of its leaders like MLK and then the continued assassination and obliteration of African Americans in the United States as we saw in Buffalo, New York. We fight for pro-life, meaning all of life, but also that includes those before they are born. And then you see the evolution of the abortion pill. 
We see the movement towards caring for under-resourced communities, and some of that requires relocation and navigating economic opportunity, but in the midst of that, you have gentrification that then moves out the most vulnerable of a particular community. You find yourself in a place where there is no banking options, and so the evolution of microloans to help offset loan sharks, and then you have the creation of payday loans, which becomes its own sort of oppression. Again and again. And the more you get into this, you feel like, okay, we tried to go about making this wrong right, and then there's like three little offshoots, these little tributaries that lead to their own forms of injustice, and it can feel like it's outside of your grasp. Why does that happen? Look at me, chapter 9, verse 3. This is an evil that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. Now, this word evil in the Hebrew has the idea of sinister. It means bringing misfortune. There's something about our hearts. Jeremiah talks about it. We often say, well, this is how I feel. Well, congratulations. Your heart might be leading you in a path of destruction. There's something that's within our hearts that's deeply broken that can even be sinister and bring about misfortune for others. It's a common reality. This is not a positive painting of humanity. That if we can just get the right amount of education, everybody will be happy. No, no, no. There's something deeply broken within us as human beings and in com human communities such that humans or even sometimes Christians can be driven by their wounds, driven by their idols, driven by their lusts, such that they actually demonize or destroy others and need to, to bring a false sense of security or comfort. And you move towards one area of justice and another one pops up. Even our justice work can have harmful, unintended consequences. And that can be, it can take the wind out of your sails. Number two, our justice work can lead to conflict even among allies. We all know the buzzwords, and yeah, I'm going to say them, okay? Some of you, you know, it's like we, we understand some people throw around, you know, uh, social justice, some people throw around CRT, and I know this is causing some goose pimples for some folks, all right? So just these words, right? They're so charged in our culture, we got wokeism. I don't even know half the time what it is other than it's just, hey, somebody doesn't like what you're doing, so there's that label. And then there's uh, cancel culture, which, by the way, I grew up in fundamental Christianity. We did that all the time. We invented cancel culture, by the way. It's like the Christian band that slowly stepped out of line. We burned their CDs on the stage. You better not own any of their CDs. That's cancel culture. We started that. Blaming it on the culture. We did that. We don't like ourselves when we see it in others. And yeah, we spend all of this energy trying to attack each other and how we're talking about going about God's purposes. And listen, yes, we need to have thoughtful and even, yes, especially biblical dialogue around what is justice and how does God engage us. But the reality is, is so often we bring our cultural lenses to the text and what we're doing is we're mashing our culture and hoping that it comes out of the text and instead of letting the text mash the way we are so we more are in line with Jesus. We do this in both extremes. Let the hearer beware. This happens to all of us. And so we've let, in many ways, the secular culture 
meaning they're not driven by God's purposes and values because they don't want Jesus as king, to lead in some areas of justice where the church ought to be, but instead we're just fighting among each other, trying to show who's in and who's out, and we've left this vacuum. And we have an opportunity to be a witness for Jesus and his purposes, but instead we just look like fools. Look at, look at chapter 9, verse 3. Not only are the hearts of the children of man full of evil, but look at this. And madness is in their hearts while they live. This word madness in the theological workbook of the Old Testament, when they seek and dissect these particular words and how they're teased out across all of biblical text, it's this irrational thought process. It's this biting and devouring one another. It's this insanity that madness is in our hearts too. And we just go after each other. And actually, it, it's this language of blindness. Often it's used of those who are drunk. And yet this is in our hearts. We start working towards these things and then suddenly we just go mad with each other. And some of you, I know, you're thinking of the people who are the polar opposite of you and they're like, yeah, they're crazy. <laughs> you too. We're all a little nuts. That's what it, it doesn't say the people on the opposite end of the aisle are the crazy ones. It says we're all a little mad. And that's okay to acknowledge. It brings the human component to the dialogue. And I just got to tell you, I get, I get wonderful emails. <laughs> Kurt. And the reality is, even as a teaching team, this isn't just Gabe talking, okay? Campus pastors, senior pastors having a dialogue around this text, seeking to understand, do what's called exegesis, study the text within its context, within its literary genre, its style, its type, as to what God meant to the original hearers and therefore what it means to us in our present day wrestling. Half of our dialogue was, what are people going to hear? Not what we're going to say, but what are people going to, that's the world of the church right now when it comes to this topic. And then you think to yourself, why work towards justice when it feels pointless? <laughs> I'm telling you, it starts to, it, it can easily make enemies out of allies because we're letting the culture define who we get to demonize. We're going to our political pundits and saying, tell me how to think about my church members. This ought not to be, but it can make us go crazy because we've got this madness in us. And then number three, our justice work won't eradicate the ultimate reign of death. <laughs> you work towards justice, maybe bringing a little more equity within your community, within your workspace, here within this church, and then somebody gets cancer and they die early. You spend your life and then finally death knocks on your door. There's this reality. Look with me here, chapter 9, verse 3, and this is where he's going in chapter 9 as a whole. And after that, they go to the dead. You know what the dead means? Dead. Okay? There's not a lot of... Mystery in that one. Both the righteous, this is where he's going in all of chapter 9. Those who do the right things and those who are manipulating others and engaged in wickedness, they both die. They both get the same outcome at the end. How is that fair? So why even work toward justice when it feels pointless? This is where he's wrestling. He's looking at it with some realism. This is why we've entitled this series, Walking Through Ecclesiastes, Life Up in Smoke. And here's Kohelet's goal. So that's the preacher. That's the one who's gathering these experiences, this wisdom in order to guide us into better understanding of God's world. 
His goal is to help us understand that if you put your hope exclusively in what this temporal life has to offer, you will find emptiness. You will. And how he goes about doing that is through vulnerability. I, I, well, this is one thing I've just really come to appreciate about Kohelet. Because he's like, I tried that, I got to the top, and it failed. He's just first starting off by airing all the ways that he's failed. How he chased the wrong things, how it didn't give him what he thought it was going to give him. And then he asks questions of life. And then at the end, he gives little insights, just a couple little hints <laughs> here and there. But most of it is him saying, tried that and it failed, tried that and it failed, which is wisdom in and of itself to hear that. But he's leading with his failures, which is also just really encouraging to me. And he does this. Some of you may have noticed, you're like, Gabe, like we're not just marching our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. It's like, I feel like you skipped this text. Here's part of it, because even as he's processing, he kind of does what we all do when we're processing, when you're in the midst of a fog. He brings it up, and then he goes over to this thing over here, and then after he goes to this over the thing over here, and then he comes all the way back to this thing over here. You see him kind of wrestling through these questions of life. And we want it to be nice and ordered and clear. Give me the deductive reasoning. Help me to follow. And he's like, no, this is life. This is how we process life. When you're going through trauma, you're going through a difficult time, or you have a question you don't have answered, when you're sitting with a friend, is it always really nice and neat and orderly? No. It's really welcoming to say, hey, he's processing. He's like, I'll come back to that because I don't, I don't know. I'm going to come back, you know. And so for that, instead of doing four messages on justice, we decided to do one. That's why you see us touching on a couple of these different passages. And he, he meets us with such realism. I mean, the language he uses here in chapter four, that could get you kicked out of some churches, I think. You start talking about oppressors and the oppressed and oppression and power, and they're like, uh-oh, look out. And you're like, that's literally the words in Scripture, literally. It's not like metaphorical literary. You know, you know, some people are like, I was literally scared out of my mind. No, you weren't. You were metaphorically scared out of your mind. <laughs> this is literally the words in the text, okay? <clears throat> but he's doing something in the midst of all of this, right? This is a long game. And this is how you know he's an older gentleman. He's not in a hurry. Sometimes when you're young, you're just like, you're ready to get your point out there, Right? He's just stringing us along. He's letting us feel the wrestling of his journey. And he's like, that's life under the sun. That's life under the sun. That's life under the sun. And you're like, all right, well, what's over the sun? Ah. He gets you to ask the question. He's bringing us on a journey that is not comfortable, but is good. And he gives us a hint. And one of the places he gives us a hint is in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Turn back with me there. Chapter 3. Verses 16 and 17, where he says this. Now, you're going to notice two words, okay? There's going to be the word justice here. That's the word mishpat in Hebrew. Then you're going to find the word righteous, which means, which in Hebrew is tzedekah, okay? So we're going to come back to that, but just giving you a little forecast of what he's talking about here. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. So 
Why work towards justice when it feels pointless? And here's why. He's given us this hint. One day, the ultimate judge will make his point. It may not always be on this side of the sun, but one day, the ultimate judge will make his point. He will render his verdict. And he's processing this. Remember, we've said this before. You can't just read Ecclesiastes and feel like you're going to get the whole picture. This Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, he's processing life built off of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And you see a God who is judge over all of creation that's trickling its way throughout all the biblical narrative. And you see it in the first three chapters of Genesis. After he creates all of creation, he speaks it into being. He casts his verdict. It is good. He's making a declaration as to what is good, and he has the authority to declare what is good. Then he makes man and woman, he goes, oh, this is very good. There's his declaration, his verdict over all that he's made. And then in Genesis 3, you see these two human beings who rebel against their creator king, and then God once again declares his verdict. He curses the ground with thorns and thistles, and now says death will come to all of humanity, and all of creation will unravel because they are running from their their creator. He casts his verdict. God is the judge whether we like it or not, and we will live into his verdict whether we like it or not. And one day, the ultimate judge will make his point, even if it feels pointless today. And what we see across the pages of scripture is that God is deeply concerned about justice. Now, the two words that I mentioned, mishpat and tzedekah, these are important because a lot of people say what the Bible means about justice and what it doesn't mean about justice, and these are just helpful. Mishpat is rectifying justice, okay? It's setting wrongs to right by punishing wrongdoers and caring for victims. And you see this across the Psalms. You see this across Scripture. There are victims and there are those who actually carry out wrongdoing. There are oppressed and there are oppressors. And this type of mishpat justice seeks to make those wrongs right in time and space. Tzedakah is more primary justice. It's often translated righteousness, but we in kind of our Western culture tend to think of that as just personal morality. You know, if I just have a right relationship with you know, just a couple things in my private sphere, but not paying attention to my public presence or any of that type of stuff, then I'll be okay. No, this has much bigger ramifications as communal dynamics. It's living in such a way that renders rectifying justice obsolete. So if we got righteousness right, we wouldn't need justice. But we live in a broken world where you and I are not always righteous. Right? We know that of ourselves. And we see that on a communal dynamic, and therefore mishpat is necessary. Reed Kappel, campus pastor at Olathe campus, gave a good illustration that I wanted to share with you. He said mishpat is kind of like the work of referees and flags and penalties. Righteousness is playing the game with integrity and skill and respect where flags and refs aren't needed. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean if somebody goes out of bounds, you know, if think about football, and they go out of bounds, you're like, no, everybody goes out of bounds. It's no big deal. No, you got to bounce. You got to hand the ball over. That's the rules of the game, right? That's what the ref does. It keeps everybody accountable so that the game can continue to go. Mishpat keeps folks accountable when righteousness is not upheld. 
And because we got madness in here and we got evil in here, we need mishpat out here. Yeah? Because here's the deal. What we see here is that God will exercise his justice. Now, there's a little bit of ambiguity in the text, okay? Does that mean now or does it ultimately mean later? And there's a little bit of yes. He's kind of, Kohelet's anticipating a little bit of that now and an ultimate reality of that later. The Apostle Paul, even writing to Timothy, his protege in 1 Timothy 5, says there are some sins that will be revealed now and there will be some that will not be revealed until the judgment. It's also fascinating that's right after he says, Timothy, drink a little wine because pastoral work can be crazy. It's another sermon for another day. (laughs) I'm just saying, the Bible is great. Um, I don't know why people knocking it. I love this book. Uh, And just a snort, did you? What? A snort before service? I no, I did not have a snort before service. (laughs) To be very clear, let that question be answered among the people of God. All right. (laughs) And here's the thing: justice is a good thing. It's a good thing from God's perspective if you are God's person. You see that God brings his justice down on Egypt, who'd been oppressing his people. They were the oppressors, had extraordinary power. And God actually judged their empire. It crumbled. They lost wealth. They lost military. They lost emotional stability. They lost standing on a global sphere. But the good was that Israel was liberated and freed. And now we're his people. This was good. The world was better because of God's justice. But it was better for Israel and not Egypt. When you're God's people, his justice is a gift. And this does raise the question, like, by what are we judged? And, and this isn't necessarily explicitly dealt with in the particular passage, but I need to bring this up as a pastor, okay? Sometimes I bring up asides because as a pastor, I don't want us to misunderstand. I'm trying my best here, okay? What are we judged by? Is it because we say the right things? Let's just talk in the justice realm. You just have the right virtue signaling. You post the right things. Is that going to make you justified? No. If you do the right things, if you finally show up to all these particular events or all these particular institutions, if you just do the right things, then you'll receive the right virtue. No. And sometimes we can read these texts in isolation and we miss what God's doing. What? will put you on the right side of justice. It all depends on whose you are, not what you do. And here's why. Whose you are shapes how you speak. Whose you are shapes what you do. Whose you are shapes how you show up in the world. But you do so with an extraordinary peace while you're also working against injustice. You can show up not thinking that my very identity is on the line. Instead, you can say, I am God's beloved, and therefore I can show up and lose everything because he's still got me. That's the only way you'll be able to be empowered to say the things that are uncomfortable or to bring comfort when you'd rather be angry, when you'd be able to show up for someone who's in need or actually show up and be quiet and let other people serve when you should be supporting rather than leading. That's what's going to empower us to be the right kinds of people where God has us. It's about being God's person, being his church and walking in his world. That's what God said to Abraham, walk before my face and be holy, right? It's being with him that now we can be whole and we walk according to his way. It's about whose you are. And that shapes everything. That's why you see sacrifice here across the Old Testament. Because there are ways that God's justice and his mercy both meet us. 
But he consistently wants you to know that, yes, this was awful and there's a payment and this is atrocious, so don't do it again. But if you do it, there's a way to actually pay for that and we can be okay. It's about reconciliation with him, not just mere transaction. Same way with the gospel. He came, not that he can just give us a gift and walk away, but actually to pay our debt. Yes, that was necessary so that we can actually be reconciled to him so that we can be confident we are his. And it's not just a saving from sin, but a saving to life, a life of justice and a life of righteousness such that you can see that those who are his actually imitate him in justice and mercy. Micah 6, 8, he has shown you, O human, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Let's just not look at the Old Testament. Go to the New Testament, Matthew 7, chapter 21. Verse through verse 23, not everyone who says to me, they've got the right words, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do all the religious things? Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? But then we go to see the verdict that comes up next. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Whose are you? Depart from me you workers of lawlessness. You did all the right religious stuff, but you weren't mine. Go to Matthew 25, sheep and goats. And he's like, you took care of me. When did we take care of you? The person who was in need that was near you, that was me. Come into my joy. You never took care of me. When did we not take care of you? The person who was around you, your neighbor. You shunned them. You turned your back on them. You turned your back on me. There's this extraordinary intimacy by whose we are and how we show up in the world, especially towards our neighbors. So who do you belong to? Do you belong to pleasure? Do you belong to money? Do you belong to your work? If you belong to any one of those lesser goods, you will oppress others in order to get more of it. But if you belong to God, then suddenly you can say no to pleasure. Suddenly, when you're God's, you can release some of that money for the common good or for the needs of others, trusting that he still has you. If, when, when you belong to God, you can actually release achievement. You don't have to do everything all the time, but you can actually create space for other people to do good things so they can also receive affirmation. And you have a different way of seeing those around you, looking for the ones that the world often overlooks. So what do those who belong to God, what do they look like? What do they do? Here we go. If, if sometimes doing the work of justice feels pointless, but you hold within your heart the biblical truth, this bedrock anchor that one day the ultimate judge will make his point, here's what we can do, friends. Don't turn away from just work. Don't turn away from just work. And there are three different ca categories to this. One, keep your eyes open, okay? Keep your eyes open. Chapter 4, verse 1. How does he start? Again. Again. I see the oppressions. He didn't see them once and then closed his eyes. Closing your eyes will not solve the world's problems, nor will it take and give you the peace you long for. Because it'll still be there, and you'll know it. And you'll feel it. But you'll hold on to the promise that if you hide in darkness, that maybe it'll go away within you. You know it won't go away out there but it'll go away from the anxiety in here, and it won't. So keep your eyes open. Secondly, keep naming the pain, okay? Just because you named it once doesn't mean you're done. 
You see this in relationships. When you're working towards reconciliation, sometimes you got to keep naming things. Sometimes there are oppressors and there are oppressed. When you're looking at the real world and dealing with real issues, sometimes justice must be done, and it's difficult, and it's painful. And sometimes you may find yourself in the oppressed camp, and then sometimes you may find yourself in the oppressor camp. Just because you fit in one category doesn't mean you don't also fit in the other at times. And you've got to come to terms, listen, sometimes we can have this naive optimism or this utopian framework that we can make everything all right. The reality is, is you have to sit in the, in, in the world that, that the injustice that is around us is much bigger than anything you can handle. And that will destroy you if it's just you. But that's why we come together to worship a God who's in control. This is why we come to worship, not just to praise his name, but also to name the pain. Just go to the Psalter, the Psalms. The majority of the Psalms that are written, this is the worship book of the people of Israel and therefore still the worship book for us. The majority of them are what's called lament, naming the pain. Where are you, God? How long will you forget me forever? Very honest and raw, sometimes a sanctified discontent over the brokenness of the world and yet simultaneously trusting that you can bring your full self to him. He'll hear you and walk with you through it. We need that with each other, and we need to do that together. So keep naming the pain, and then thirdly, keep working while you can. If you go to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10, Kohelet writes, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. God's given us this window in light of our eternity in light of where we're going, to do something. He has. What has he called you to do? What has he given you to do? That shows up in your every day. And here in a minute, later on at the end of the service, we're going to have Darion Walker, who's a member of our church. We're going to actually do a This Time Tomorrow interview talking about his work and what that looks like and how this continues to work. Because we need to be practical. The moment we get abstract is the moment we allow our cultural lenses often to apply to some of this stuff and we just go about life as usual. The gospel and the word of God should change us, not just assuage us, okay? Maybe it's about getting into ministry partners with uh, Mission Adelante or Crossroads Academy or Care Portal, thinking through avenues in which through your extra time outside of your workspace, you can engage there. Maybe it's with your relationships and everyday conversations and how you show up there, challenging assumptions, not in a way to demonize others or to prove you're smarter. That's why you got to remember whose you are. Your identity is not on the line of being right, right? But actually showing up in a way to help bring life wherever you are. And if actually be honest about death too and to show up differently. knowing that one day the judge will make his final point. One day he will. Even if it feels like you're at starts and stops and you feel like you're not making any progress, even though it may feel as though nothing is changing, one day the lion will lay down with the lamb. One day God's justice will kiss God's righteousness. One day the world will be made right. And there will come a moment where God will look at your life and say, you had a small part to play in what I was doing. 
You can't change the world. I can't change the world. Sometimes we just get this over. We're going to change the world, right? You can't. I can't. God can. And here's what's wonderful. He invites us to be a part of that. Not to finish it, because he's going to have to do that. But we get to be a part of it today. And that's comforting, because you don't have to do everything. But you do get to do something. And God actually is inviting you to be a part of that. So wherever you are, whatever you're doing, as we pursue God's purposes of justice and righteousness, don't give up. Let's pray. God, we're mindful of yet again another shooting where 10 people's lives were cut short out of hatred and demonic ideology, where the demons are just celebrating as we're destroying other image bearers made beautiful and wonderful. I pray, Lord, that your justice would be done. I pray, Lord, that you would guide us as your people here in Kansas City in whatever capacity you've called us to, to show up differently because we are yours. God, would you give us, by the power of your spirit and the voices of our brothers and sisters that are here together, to be constantly dissecting those cultural lenses of distortion that we often bring to how we think we're following you, but we're actually following the evil one. Wake us up, God. Make us whole. Lord, we long for your will to be done. We, we echo your prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Amen.